0: <clears throat> good morning. Good morning. Welcome to our eleven o'clock service. It's a strange, warm January day, isn't it? I'm not complaining. I'm not complaining. Trust me. Last week, Pastor Craig led off our a, 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 a message series, our vision series. Every January, we do a vision series, just thinking through who we are as a church and. Uh, this year we're talking about God's Pin Lucy. God's Pen Lucy Pin Lucy is a neighborhood where we are worshiping. And um, look at Acts chapter 8, celebrating uh, joy in the city as revival came to the city of Sychar in Samaria, the region, region of Samaria, but the city, the revival uh, broke out and and as a, the the word of God went there and Pastor Craig did a great job of talking about that. Just uh, just a couple of the slides that he had last week I want to review those. One is we're a church, or a reconciling church uh, that celebrates and applies the, the reconciling work of Jesus Christ among the diverse cultures of Baltimore. These two slides are about Baltimore. One is just uh, the, the, the the white presence, and the other is the African American presence. It just show the diversity of Baltimore. And the second slide that he had um, is, is is about Penn Lucy. The, the, you see the, the this Baltimore city, and Penn Lucy's right there. It's right here. <laughs> it, it, we're a restoring church, a community development church. Joining Christ in loving Pen Lucy in word and deed, doing justice, loving mercy to build grace filled disciples. He used the phrase partnering with Jesus who loves Pen Lucy. Partnering with Jesus and loving Pen Lucy. So last week was about celebrating. This week is about building. Next week will be about serving. Uh, uh, Greg, Blake will, will give that message, but building, building grace filled disciples. And, and we're, I want to look today, I want to continue talking about Samaria. Acts 8 was about Samaria. I'm going to look, though, at John chapter 4, another great passage about Samaria. It's the very familiar story of the woman at the well. Maybe you know this story, maybe you don't. We're going to walk through that story a little bit. Um, If you have a Bible, turn there. We're going to have the reading of the Scripture on the overhead, the ESV translation. Stand and listen to God's Word from John chapter 4. I'm going to to read verse 4, and then I'm going to jump down to 27, to the end of the chapter, to to, uh, 42. Chapter 4, verse 4 is my key verse, verse 4. And he, meaning Jesus, he had to pass through Samaria. Jump down to 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you speak or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. But here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, but we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Amen. may be seated. Jesus, the Savior of the world. John chapter 4, wonderful chapter. We could talk for six weeks on John 4 and not exhaust all that's in here. It touches on evangelistic technique. How do you share Christ with a person one-on-one? Great, great technique. Great stuff in John chapter 4. It talks about um, just one of some of the things you want to talk about when you share Christ with someone. Good stuff here in this chapter. There's this reminder that Jesus is the only Savior, the exclusive cra- uh, claim that he's the Savior of the world. Not a Savior, the Savior of the world. That's right here. There's great stuff about the Holy Spirit who leads us in worship, spirit and truth, spirit and truth, that balance. We can talk about worship with this passage. But I want to focus on the, on the question of this. What is Jesus doing? What is he building? What is Jesus trying to build? Why is he doing what he's doing? And and, and John the writer wants us to do more than just look at a story of a woman who's radically saved. That's here. This is a story about a woman who's radically saved, who comes to Jesus. But it's about more than that. It's like the book of Jonah. The, the the climax of the story you would think is when finally, you know, he, he gets rid of the the, 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 the the here's the fish experience. He says, Okay, I'll go to Jonah and he and jo- and the city uh, go to Jonah, go to Assyria, Nineveh, and, and they come to Christ. There's a revival in that great city. You think that would be where the book would end, but there's one more chapter. Because God has to deal with his prophet. God the book is about God dealing with his prophet, not just about a revival. Likewise, John chapter 4. Often we think of John 4 as just about a radical woman who got saved. It's more than that. It's about not only the fact that this radical woman got saved, we're going to see this more going on. Jesus is saying something to his followers. Just as God says something to Jonah, Jesus is saying something to the 12 and to you and I in this story. It's more than just a story of a radical conversion. Which, which, you know, the, the key verse is verse 4. We saw it. He had to pass through Samaria. We'll talk about that in a second. He had to pass through Samaria. My title is the Samaritan Necessity. The Samaritan Necessity. Many people believe that the necessity was because there was a woman who needed to be saved at a well. And that's true, but there's more going on. Um, when I was with university, when I first started with InterVarsity uh, years ago, Uh, One of my first summer camps was in Boston. It was Gordon College. A great guy that I was getting to know, named Carl Ellis. Some of you know Carl was the speaker. There's another speaker there, John Perkins, someone who I've gotten to know a little bit, and he's the, the, the head of the Christian Community Development, the founder of that movement. And our church is a CCDA church. He's now in his 80s. He's still going strong, but you know he's in his 80s. So what can we say? Great guy, but. His message, the message, he spoke five times, but the message I remember was this one, John 4, 4, that Jesus had to go through Samaria. He preached this text. I pray I can do the justice to this text that he did. He, there's a necessity here. What kind of necessity is here? What's John talking to us about? Look at this, look at the map. Judea, a, a province, a state, a province, a region, Jerusalem, the city, Galilee, Capernaum, Cana, Nazareth, places where Jesus grew up, and know, the apostles grew up. Um, Samaria, in the middle. So, to get from Jerusalem to the areas of Galilee where your uncle and your cousins live, obviously you have to go through Samaria, right? You know what, what it says? You look at the map. But this says Jesus had to go through Samaria. There's something going on here. Now, let me tell you what. Let me look at this. Look, look, look at the man. There is a John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist had his ministry at the Jordan River. They confessed their sins. The Jews would come and confess their sins. That's over here to the right. So he didn't have his ministry in Samaria, he had it on the right side of the Jordan River because the, the Jews did not want to walk on Samaritan turf. That was dirty, it was unclean. There was tension, there was antagonism. When you saw a Samaritan, you would say the S word, the N word, but it was the S word, Samaritan. So, now get this, you got the Jericho. So there's a road that went through Sychar, Samaria, and on to the Sea of Galilee, where your cousin lived. And you also have a road, the Jericho road, which is kind of northwest of Jerusalem, that would take you around the Jordan River, up the, the east side of the Jordan River. Thank you, Andy and and then then you would so i call that the beltway okay so you got a choice you take green avenue straight or you go around the beltway what do you think the jews normally did they took the beltway why They didn't want to walk on that turf on that dirty samaritan turf and jesus said uh uh-uh. uh we're going straight boys Sychar, the Samaritan road, the road of Samaria. And, and, and that Jesus had to go through Samaria. To. In Acts 1 8, Jesus gives the command, the, the, the great commission you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. You know that verse. We talked about it last week a little bit. Two things there. First, there's a geographical strategy that Jesus is talking about. It's a geographical strategy, concentric circles. It's Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Now, for, for our church, we're in Pen Penelucie is our Jerusalem. That's where we are. That's where we're worshiping today. The, the, Judea Samaria is, is the regions beyond here, around, around the region, the state. I don't know, the, the city, the state, the Baltimore, metro area. I don't know what you want to call it, but not right here, but around here. And then the ends of the earth. We, we do, as Craig said last week, we have foreign missions uh, aspects to our church. So there's clearly a geographic strategy that we understand. but There's also a cultural strategy. That's what I'm going to talk more about that today. Culture. The reality that people have different histories and different traditions and different ways of living and even different languages. Jerusalem is you and people like you. Jerusalem. Judea, people like you, but who are kind of around you, culturally. Samaria is the people on the other side of the tracks. They may be near you, but they're, you don't want to be near them. Samaria, the other folk. And in the ends of the earth. So, so the Scriptures give us a geographical strategy and a cultural strategy. And as we've already said, the apostles, the 12, as they're being discipled by Jesus, they very much buy into the, uh, the, the normal attitude towards the Samaritans. You remember in, in Luke chapter 9, when he's going from um, the Sea of Galilee down to Jerusalem one of the times, that he, that he again took them down uh, through, through the Samaritan villages. And he says, as we go, he says, send somebody ahead and see if we can get some lodging there. And he said, they, they said, no, "No one, no one, will let us stay with them." Lord, do you want us to send fire down from heaven upon them? Jesus said, "No, that's okay, guys." It went on. <laughs> that's their attitude. Jesus tells a story about uh, who's your neighbor. Tells a story with a good Samaritan. Remember that story? The good Samaritan. That's an oxymoron, you see, to the, the disciples. Good Samaritan. They're dogs. They're Gentiles. We don't. We don't. A good Samaritan? No, the, the priest and the Levite in that story are the heroes, not the Samaritan. No, Jesus. And later in Luke 17, he's again coming from Galilee to Judea, and there's 10 lepers that get healed, dirty unclean lepers. And they, he heals them, and they praise God. They left, but one of them. They left to go to the village. One of them stops and says, Jesus, thank you for healing me. And Jesus says, didn't just say that there was a one man that got healed. You know what he says? The one that got healed was a Samaritan. Eh, Twist the knife a little bit to the disciples. Why is Jesus always making the Samaritans heroes in this story? Because he wants his disciples to begin to love and interact with Samaritans, which they did not want to do. Often there's confusion when we think of the cultural dynamics of Scripture. Look around here. You, you might see people of different cultural groups, ethnic groups. So, what is Samaria to you may not be Samaria to me. What's Jerusalem to you may not be Jerusalem to me. It gets confusing. But we as a church, we're worshiping in Pelusi. This is where we are and we need to move out in these uh, uh, concentric ways. We want to embrace a united mission as a united body as we worship here in Pen Lucy. celebrating, building, and serving. Look, here's my point. Jesus is intentional. He's intentionally building a diverse, disciple-making community. That's what we're talking about today. We're going to look at this passage, this evangelism. We're going to talk about evangelism, a little bit about discipleship and justice and community, but I'm going to focus on community mostly, community. And Acts, Acts 8 was not their first encounter with Jesus with the gospel. In, in, the various, in the gospels, various interactions between the apostles and Samaritans, we see their fears, but despite, the, despite their fears and their cultural arrogance, God uses them. God's gonna use them in the book of Acts. Now, first point, common ground. Common ground in Samaria, verses five to eight. Here we have the, the story of Jacob's as well. And you, you've read the scripture, you know the story. She, she comes at the, a strange hour. Usually the women would come and gather in the morning at 9 o'clock. She comes at the high noon hour. She's an outcast woman. Jesus picks up that cultural clue. He's alone. Maybe she thinks he's a, he, he's a traveling salesman. Maybe, maybe he's... May, we don't know the, intera- the, the nature of the total interaction between them, but I'm sure at one point in her mind, she may have thought that, that, that he was number six. You know, we don't know. We don't know what's going on in her heart. But they gather around a well, Jacob's well. Genesis 33, you can find out the history of that well. But water is is an essential resource for life. A well is an infrastructure item in society, which believers and unbelievers share together, okay? Common resources are essential for human survival and flourishing in any um, region or area. It always has been. Jesus initiates the discussion around water with this woman. Did you, did you notice that? Jesus initiates the conversation. She doesn't approach. He approaches her. Jesus invites the woman to serve him, to meet his needs. They have this common need. Jesus could come as the Messiah of the world to say, meet my needs, but he doesn't do that. He says, you have dignity. You meet my needs. Amazing. Amazing. Son of God. Incarnation. John Perkins in that uh, University East camp years ago used this to talk about the felt need concept. The fact that those who want to work incarnationally, who want to serve in areas of need, need to not just know about the needs, but feel and experience the needs of those to whom they want to love and serve. See, Jesus didn't have to fabricate a need. He had a need. Because he was there. They shared that common ground, that common experience. He was thirsty. And she could meet his need. The felt need concept. Bible-believing Christians need to get beyond merely intellectual understanding facts about the poor. We need to, uh, to feel the reality of poverty as best we can. Sharing common ground through incarnational involvement with people right where they are. We're not called to, to, to isolation, but penetration, to involvement with people. I often think of, of Christians are too much uh, uh, like the Amish, of, of you know the Amish culture, how they they're, they're kind of given up, they're kind of frozen culturally uh, about 200 years ago, maybe 300 years ago. They're kind of culturally frozen. They don't want to do electricity and cars and things like that and they, because they don't want to be contaminated by the world. Well, God calls us to, have, to share a lot of common ground with the people of the world, because we are in this world, not of this world. Common ground. What are some of the common ground that we share with people, with this world, natural opportunities for interaction that we have as believers? Well, we all share a common concerns about safety, about the environment, what's happening with the environment, about about we share a common job space, people we work with, common space, common interests. Often we have common hobbies with people. We have often common entertainment. We have common concern for, for the things of justice. Sometimes, don't we? We want to see, you know, things get better in our world. Things be more just. Three particular areas of justice we kneel in right now. One is the, the educational issue, the issue of educational justice and equality of opportunity. We we have a learning center. When, why do we have a, a learning center with Pendency Action Network? To try to increase the quality level of education here in the city. Years ago, we, we had a Baltimore Christian School for 18 years. We had to shut it down a few years ago. But what was that? That was rich and poor, black and white, church and unchurch, coming together to solve the need for affordable Christian education right here in the city. Educational justice It's still an issue. Still an issue. Recreational justice: the need for, for 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 kids to just play and have have fun and. And run around and, and have organized leagues. Uh, when, you're, when you're in the county, look around at the, 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 the quality of, of the fields and of, the, of, of the, the, the spaces that they have to play and then compare it to the city. We have some parks in the city, some big parks in the city, but just compare the two. And you'll see there's some inequity going on there. There's a lot of discussion about the rec centers here in the city and uh, Several years ago, a lot of them shut down. They begin to open some of them up, but that's recreational justice is an issue. We used to have a sports league, the What the Youth Partnership, sports leagues. We don't do that anymore. Um, shut down a couple years ago, but important. Kids need to play, need to run, need to play, not to just uh, do this thing on the computer all day. They need to get exercise. And then the third issue of justice is racial justice. a Big issue in our world today, of course. Intervarsity, just a couple weeks ago, at a it raised a big stir. as They profiled the whole Black Lives Matter move. University Christian Fellowship campus ministry. I was an university staff for a long time. Um, they they profiled the Black Lives Matter. The worship team came out on that Monday night of the of the missions conference in Black Lives Matter T-shirts. And they and 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 then Michelle Higgins. Michelle is uh, the daughter of a, of a PCA pastor friend of mine in St. Louis. She serves in his church. He also serves at our denominational seminary and. She brung it about the Black Lives Matter movement and tried to help people who don't understand that the Black Lives Matter is something that Christians really need to understand. Now again, I've always said this before, that I I wish that whoever came up with the phrase had had made the phrase Black Lives Matter also because that's really what it is. The, The movement isn't saying only Black Lives Matter. The movement is saying Black Lives Matter also. You're forgetting that Black Lives Matter. That's what it's trying to say. So, unfortunately, uh, I didn't name it, somebody else named it, but we need to understand that. And rather than just have a quick, instant reaction, those who are part of the movement understand that white lives matter and blue lives matter and red lives matter, but the point is that there seems to be in our country a sense that black lives don't. That's what the movement is trying to say. Anyway, racial justice, Christians need to think about how we connect with that. Jesus is intentionally building a diverse, disciple-making community. The second thing in the passage is conversions. Common ground, conversions. Conversions in Samaria. Notice the religious longings that were expressed by the woman. Her internal search, five men. She she, she could never be satisfied. She wasn't looking for, for a man. She was looking for the love of God. She couldn't find it. Man after man after man, looking for love in all the wrong places, never having those longings satisfied. Notice also, as a Samaritan, she clearly possessed some truth. She says, "Look, this is Jacob's well. Jacob's in the book of Genesis. It says this mountain is Mount Jerusalem. We worship the true and living God, the same God that Moses worshipped. We know all about that. She shares some common truth. And look at the history of of Samaria, how it was created." Craig talked to someone about that last week, about 800 centuries before how that happened. But they possess some truth. They possess some truth. But she also, she has some error. And Jesus is not afraid to say, you worship what you know. This is is what worship is all about. And the time is coming when everybody will worship in spirit and truth. It's not the place, it's the who. But Jesus is not afraid to tell her, your understanding isn't exactly right when we're dealing with people, all people, don't be afraid to say, mm, I'm not sure you're right about that. Jesus gives us the freedom to do that. In fact, we must do that if we're to bring people to the, the, the truth of Jesus. And then as the passage goes on. Jesus, she, she says, when Messiah, you know, they're having this conversation. You've, you've seen that conversation. He brings up, you know, go go call your, your husband. She says, I got five, you know. She says, look, when the Messiah comes, all this religious debate, when the Messiah comes, he'll straighten it all out. We'll understand it all. And then Jesus says, I'm he. I'm the Messiah. And I'm sure her mouth dropped. Her mouth dropped. And at that point, the disciples began to come back. You know, people in the community have some truth already, but they still need a clear understanding of the truth, and we need to be those who are willing to give that. You know, it was Sunday, January 9th, 1966, it was the second Sunday of January. I lived in Anacostia. My parents lived in Anacostia. I was a little kid running around the city. Anacostia's in D.C. It's like Penn Lucy, okay? It's not where you'd want to have your kids grow up. Maybe it's changed now, but it, back then, it was it was not the, it was a community like Penn Lucy, if I could use that phrase. And um, but I had parents that took me, to, that, who dragged me and my sisters to church. I'll use the word dragged in love. <laughs> But that morning, that cold Sunday morning, I met Christ. I heard the gospel from my Sunday school teacher. I walked the aisle. I shook the pastor's hand. That night, I came back. I was baptized, a full Baptist baptism. Not one of these, but one of these where you go all the way under. That's the way we did it back then. And I was saved, and I experienced Jesus Christ as my only hope, as as the source of life, the source of living water. Fifty years ago this week, and I was thinking about this week, I said, man, that was a long time ago. I was only two when it happened. No, that's not true. But, but the living water, the fountain of life is Jesus Christ. And, and, and to, to experience what Christ has for us, we have to go to that fountain consistently. Go to that fountain. Go to that. We need to, we need to, we need to continually drink of him in our life each day. I remember the testimony several years ago. We had a, a, a listening session with some people who live in Lucy from our church. And Paulette Sullivan, one of our members, was one of the ones who we were talking about some of the, what are some of the needs of Pen Lucy. And Paulette was very passionate. She said, The one thing I want to see have with my neighbors, I want them to know Jesus. I want them to be saved. So we can talk about the justice here and justice there, and, and, but I want them to know Christ. And sometimes when we think about how to serve Pen Lucy, we forget that very basic but very important thing. In John 4, Everyone who drinks with this water will be thirsty again. But Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You know what? There are thirsty people in Lucy, But I want you to know this. There are thirsty people in Guilford as well. And we need to remember that. It ain't just the people of that, are thir- that that need Jesus Christ. He's the Savior of what? The world. As the passage draws to a close. The, the, there's a beer commercial. Don, uh, Jonathan Goldsmith, uh, Don Equus Beer, um, where he basically says, you've seen it, stay thirsty, my friends. We need to be people who create thirst. We do that by showing that we have drunk and that we're satisfied and that we have to offer to others Jesus, the living water, Jesus is building an intentional community of disciplinary community among those who are in Penusi and those who are in the regions around. My last and third point is this community. This community in Samaria. Verses 28 and 30, you see what happens? When the disciples come back, there's a little bit of interaction, but then she leaves, she leaves and she comes and brings back her friends, her natural circle of relationships. Most of them were men, because <laughs> that's who she was. But Samaritan, she brings them back so they can hear Who's at the well? This is the most, this, could this guy be the Messiah? So, he, so it, look at verse 40. Verse 40, it says, the disciples stayed there two days. They begged the disciples and Jesus to stay for two days. Jesus is creating community between the people of Samaria and his disciples. Do you see that? And I'm sure at the end of those two days, the disciples said, Whew, let's get out of here sure that's what happened. Just as if you notice in the passage, he sent them to get food. But when they come back, he says, I didn't really send you for food. I sent you to interact with the guy who's giving the food away, who's selling the food. I sent you to talk to the guy at the convenience store, not just to get what he has. I sent you to reap the Holy Spirit. The father has sown and sown and sown, and, and these people are. Look at the fields; they are ripe for harvest. Tom Skinner, the evangelist, used to say, "Look at the fields; they are black for harvest." He says that as, as she is bringing the, the harvest to them. They were there; they didn't talk to anybody. She brings them back. This loose woman brings them back. Jesus stays two more days because he wants community. Between those, his own disciples who don't get it, and these Samaritans who they despise. The community that Jesus is building. Look, we looked at Acts 8 last week. I gotta stop. Acts 8. And Acts, one thing that you might might have noticed last week in that passage was that um, the gospel comes to this area of Samaria. The Spirit comes, and there's a revival breaks out. If you notice, when the persecution took place, the disciples went, everybody except the apostles, the followers of Christ, the church was scattered because of the persecution, except the apostles because people were scared of them because they could kill people because of Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. You don't want to knock on their door. <laughs> that's, why, that's what's going on. So the disciples are still in Jerusalem. but So this thing happened, this great thing happened. Before saying this is the work of God, they said, let's go back to Jerusalem and get the disciples, the apostles, to come and see this and confirm this. Why? Why? Old Testament history. Old Testament. Northern Kingdom, Samaria. Southern Kingdom, Judah. For many, many years, they were divided. Weren't they? They were divided for many, many years. It would be very normal for the Samaritans to think, okay, now we've had this revival here. It can't be connected to what happened in Jerusalem. So God's going to set up a system again. Northern church, Southern church. God said, uh-uh, one church. One united, reconciled church. So they wait, the apostles come, and lay hands on them, and it becomes a united body of believers. Because that's what God has always wanted, to unite his people around the cross of Christ. Well, let me stop. Well, What are some areas of discomfort? Of discomfort that... God where God is pushing us, pushing you. Well, there's ethnic barriers. Okay, you see the barrier with the Samaritans and Jews. I didn't talk about this. There's this gender barrier that's there. He says, Why are you, a Jew, talking to me, a Samaritan woman? There's a gender barrier that we've got to get through sometimes. There's a moral barrier. She's she's got five men, five husbands, and the one she's with now isn't her husband. There's a moral, there's moral issues. Jesus didn't attack that initially. He eventually got to it. But sometimes that's a barrier for some of us. We can't talk to people because uh, just, they just—they have a different lifestyle than we have. Uh, there's the barrier of education. There's the barrier of economics. Um, Urbanite magazine, great magazine. This magazine shut down in September of 2012, and they had a special edition in November because of the Freddie Gray riots. And uh, just get that edition if you have a chance to read it, to, to to see it. I've been reading it. Some great things about Baltimore. Um, Another—the last barrier I want to talk about is the linguistic barrier, the barrier of language, of speech. If you were at the Advent concert, you remember that Trina and, and, and Kelly had written this song that there were eight different languages. <laughs> and, and in the choir, we had heart, we had an interesting time trying to learn how to say all those words. It was oh, all just the word hallelujah in eight different languages. It was great doing that, but it was a challenge. It was a stretch for some of us. You know, it's good to be stretched. It's good to know that some people say hallelujah in a different language, and that's their heart language. And that even in our congregation, there are people whose whose spirit connects with God in a different language. And they they can talk in English, but they have a heart language. That's their their prayer language, their heart language. It's good for us who speak English well to understand that. Several years ago, um, Tony and Amanda Kim were were members here years ago. And Terry and I were over their house uh, just just having a nice Saturday afternoon, uh, evening dinner and we got to talking about, about important things, and, and I asked Tony, who's Korean American, I said, Tony, um, one of the things that I've noticed being in, ch- in a church that's multiracial and diverse is that for African Americans, it's really hard for us to assimilate because of the history of, of race in our country, black and white, it's hard for us to really assimilate. Tony's response as a first generation Korean was, I disagree, he says, it's harder for me as a Korean to assimilate. I said, what? He, he, he said, you are, you are underestimating the importance of language. He says, you are articulate in, in, in the king's language. As soon as he said, as soon as I open my mouth, I'm different. And I, I'm sure I said, well, look, I can sometimes talk Ebonics at home, but when I'm in public, I don't. But, the, the, but I had to repent of that because he was onto something. And we could argue on and on. Who was more? Who has assimil- What? Who, who has a more difficult job of assimilating? But I needed to repent of my minimizing of the importance of language when it comes to cross-cultural dynamics and comfort in a multicultural setting. What areas of discomfort is the Holy Spirit pushing you in your life right now? Let me close with a, with the lyrics of a song. 1971, a dude named Marvin Gaye. You, you, if you know Marvin Gaye what's going on song was inner city blues inner city blues rockets moonshots spend it on the have-nots money we make it before we see it you take it make you want to holler the way they do my life make me want to holler the way they do my life this ain't living this ain't living inflation no chance to increase finance bills pile up sky high send that boy off to die make me want to holler the way they do my life. Hang ups, letdowns, bad breaks, setbacks. Natural fact is I can't pay my taxes. Make you want to holler. Throw up both my hands. Crime is increasing. Trigger happy policing. Panic is spreading. God knows where we're heading. Make you want to holler. Throw up both my hands. 1971. It was a few years ago. And you still sometimes want to holler. But God, you see, is creating a people who can address these kind of things, who who hear the cries of their inner city. Because we have a God who hears who's heard our cry. A God who has given us living water and has made us not a river, not, not a channel, but a river. You know the difference? A channel stops. A river flows to bless others, to refresh others. Here today, you've never met Christ. You need to understand that the gospel is free, and you can partake and drink by just calling on God and say, Lord, forgive my sins, and I want to be your your child. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, keep the spigot flowing, continually drink of Jesus. Like I said, 50 years ago, I started. I'm still drinking because I still still need them. Is that your testimony? Let's pray. Lord God, I pray you bless this word, to sanctify your people through it, Lord. And may we be a, people, a church that's committed to you and all that you call to the world, the city, and this community. Let's seal this word in our hearts. May we glorify you in the way we live. Push us through the comfort, the, the discomfort zones, those barriers, that we might be your people. In Jesus' name, amen.